Guns West. Five condemned men who traded a sentence to die for a thousand to one chance to live. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Right? And you never know what's going on in the back of somebody's mind. Welcome to the Corman Catacombs, the podcast where a film buff and a bimbo rattle the skeletons in Roger Corman's massive cinematic closet. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Robin. And today we are tackling Roger Corman's directorial debut, Five Guns West, from 1955. So this is the first of about four to five movies that Roger Corman considers his training films. Because, you know, aside from that one little kind of mini demo he did after The Fast and the Furious, you know, like, this is where he's, like, jumping into the deep end and just making movies and... He claims that it was these training films that basically gave him the equivalent of, like, film school experience, except unlike film school where, you know, student films may or may not be shown to the public, his learning curves and his growing pains were immortalized on the silver screen. We all get to see his fuck-ups! Yay! That thing that artists are super infamous for loving to show. <laughs> I mean, in that way, it's kind of almost analogous to, like, how in the internet age, you know, as soon as you post something... It, it's there forever to one extent or another. And we're going to check it out here today. Exactly. So because he also produced, so this was his first time like doing the combo directing producing, which is something that we're going to see again and again. So that means he was in charge both financially and artistically. Now, as kind of a throwback to the previous episode, Dorothy Malone is back. Sweet, Dorothy Malone. Let's see if she gets a chance to be in a movie that isn't problematic. Why did you make that face? (laughs) Why did you make that face? What do you know? You shall learn. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so for context, because I didn't get to go into as much of like, you know, details about her in the previous episode. So the reason why she did The Fast and the Furious and Five Guns West was because she had left her agent and according to Roger Coleman, quote, having no work, accepted a part for next to nothing. Now, don't worry, despite this hiccup in her career, you know, things would pick back up for her. In fact, she would end up doing a melodrama that came out in 1956 called Written on the Wind, for which she won the Oscar for best supporting actress so good for her and she also ended up getting a soap opera gig specifically the tv adaptation of peyton place peyton place like p-a-y-t-o-n no p-e-y-t-o-n okay okay so first it was a book then it was a movie i've seen the movie and then it became a show i've not seen the show also it was referenced in the we didn't start the fire song i did not know that well not I'm not very good at listening to lyrics and understanding them. A lot of songs just sound like what 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 scooby doop scoppity dee scooby doop a dee dee. I can't make out words very well. I mean, in fairness, that song does list a lot of like disparate things in quick succession. So yeah, my audio processing issues did not take to that well. <laughs> and that ran from 1964 to 1968. You know, and you think, oh, four-year run. You know, not bad, but surely that doesn't mean that there were a lot of episodes. Do you want to guess? Do you want to guess how many episodes of the Peyton Place TV show there was? More or less than 100. More. 200? More. I'm sorry, what? How many episodes? 514. 
Oh my god! Because TV production was clearly a lot different back then. Because I mean, like nowadays, you know, you get shows that will have like 10, maybe like 12 to 13 episodes per season maximum. How much is that in One Piece time? (laughs) That's from East Blue up until I want to say somewhere in the halfway point. It's towards the end of the pre-time skip. So we're talking somewhere between the Sapa Odi Archipelago to maybe somewhere around Marineford. So I don't know off the top of my head, but that's just my guess. And she continued to act, you know, obviously tapering off in her later years. Her last film role, in fact, was Basic Instinct. Oh, she was in Basic Instinct. Yeah. No shit. Yeah. Not gonna lie, though, I haven't seen it. The only thing I know about Basic Instinct is some lady shows her twa. Yeah, that was Sharon Stone. She was tricked into doing that. What? So basically, originally it was going to be that she would flash her panties, but Paul Verhoeven, tangent time, Paul Verhoeven claimed that, oh, like the light is reflecting off of the panties weird. How about we do it with no panties? And she was, of course, you know, concerned. Doesn't that mean I'm going to be free balling? And he was like, oh, no, no, because like the camera angle and everything, it's just going to be a shadow. You know, like nobody's going to actually be able to see anything. I don't think straight men would reference that fucking movie as much as they do if he had been truthful. God damn it, motherfucker. (sighs) Just women not being treated fairly in Hollywood? Say it ain't so. Yay. But getting back on track to, you know, the actual movie proper. So Five Guns West, Corman pitched the idea, but the screenplay was written by Robert Wright Campbell. Sometimes he'll get credited as R. Wright Campbell or as just Robert Campbell. But this was his first collaboration with Corman, but it would not be his last. As far as them teaming up, like Corman directing and Campbell writing, they would end up doing that again for Machine Gun Kelly. Teenage Caveman, Secret Invasion, and most interesting to me, because I've made it clear, I really dig the Poe era, The Mask of the Red Death. Oh my god, one of the movies they worked together on was called Teenage Caveman! (laughs) Oh my god, some of these fucking titles are just the best! (laughs) I mean, put put a pin in it, we'll we'll get to that in a later episode. Yeah, I know. So yeah, take take a little rock, chisel it until it looks like a thumbtack. Put a pin in that. <laughs> and it ended up being a nine-day shoot on a $60,000 budget. And when I say nine-day shoot, keep in mind, we are talking about 10-hour days. Roger Corman was signed with SAG. And he, at least according to Corman, he always paid SAG scale unless he could go higher or, or add, quote, modest profit participation, which I presume is like would be something similar to, you know, like giving a portion of the box office revenue. And they ended up filming... The film primarily on two popular ranches, the Iversons Ranch and the Ingrams Ranch. The Ingrams Ranch was actually, in addition to just being like a ranch area, also had a western town that was already built there because the ranch was run by a former cowboy actor by the name of Jack Ingram. I looked it up because I was curious if like that was still intact today, even if it's you know not necessarily being used for movies. As far as I can tell, no. Now, granted, like I couldn't find a lot of sources, but there was an Angel Fire page that claims that it like changed hands a couple times, but that the like Western town was there at least up until the '60s before getting torn down for safety reasons. What? Kind of safety reasons. I'm going to assume, well, because if it was a town that was built mostly, you know, for to be used as a set for movies instead of as an actual town town, the buildings were probably like, you know, 
pretty flimsy. Okay. Valid. If they valid. weren't if they weren't built for people to live in them. That makes sense. And that Ingram's Ranch may or may not currently be a popular hiking trail. I say may or may not because I saw there was a listing on like a hiking website for the Ingram's Ranch trail. I don't know if that's the same Ingram's Ranch or if that was a different one. Either way, whatever. Exactly. It did end up raining on the first day which upset Corman so much that he had to pull over, like, on the drive up there and puke. Um, he was so upset he had to puke. Because, like, you know, it's his fr- Okay, that'd be a lot of pressure. It's your first time directing. You think you've got a nice location. You're gonna film some nice shots. Everything's gonna be fine. And then all of a sudden, it's just pouring down rain. You don't know when it's gonna stop because you don't have a weather app. It's the 1950s. <laughs> oh my god. I've, I've puked on many occasions, not because of stress reasons, but I can still relate. God said, not today, bitch. Well, <laughs> well um, more like God said, not for another hour, bitch, because once Corman kind of composed himself after puking on the side of the road, they just waited for the rain to stop and it stopped an hour later and then they were able to resume shooting just fine. Good for Corman! You're going to notice, like, as we go through a good chunk of Roger Corbett's movies that the casts are going to stay at least you know during this period relatively small because it's easier to stay in budget if you've only got so many actors running around that makes sense because yeah that means your shooting locations don't have to be as big there's less just like coordination involved no stampedes so that's a plus <laughs> okay stampeding is bad oh I also forgot to mention that the screenwriter also has a part in the movie Oh, really? I'll point him out after we've, you know, actually seen it and I can have a face to the name. Also, fun fact, as far as the legacy of this film is concerned, there is an Adam and the Ant song from 1981 that is titled Five Guns West. I recognize that person. I don't know how much of a spoiler the lyrics are, but I will give you a quick sample. Ladies can be captains and ladies can be chiefs like glorious Amazons and Bonnie Mary Reed. Ladies can be captains and ladies can be chiefs. This stuff I'm talking, Buddy Bob, don't give me any grief. Five Guns West. I'm a big tough man with a big tough plan. Gonna take a whirl with a big tough girl. Ew! That sounds nice. Gives us something to look forward to. Yeah! I should also mention that the leading man to go along with Dorothy Malone, at least as far as the poster is concerned, which we will get to the poster, is John Lund, who apparently he did acting for film, stage, and radio. One interesting note is that when he died in 1992, the Times in London, I don't know why they gave him an obituary that, I don't know, it just feels weirdly passive-aggressive. How so? Him. This is them talking about his movie career. Quote, was cut to a familiar pattern. The young actor imported to Hollywood after a big success on Broadway begins by playing the handsome guy who gets the girl, then descends by gradual degrees to being the male lead in minor westerns and occasionally in major films, being the handsome guy who does not get the girl because he lacks the spark of the hero who does. What the hell? <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know what he did to piss off the times in London. <laughs> Seriously, who did he piss off? Uh, hey Robin, remember when you at, you were asking about problematic stuff and I did a face? Oh god, here it comes. It's time to address the gray uniformed elephant in the room. Oh no! So, and keep in mind, whenever we're, we are covering a Corman movie... I look up the premise, you know, I look up trivia, I don't look at plot summaries because I want to go in mostly spoiler free. But I know from the premise and I know from like production info that 
in this movie, our heroes are not just cowboys, they are confederates. Yay, the confederacy. That thing that weirdo white people want to claim is super integral to their personality and history and culture, even though the confederacy only lasted four fucking years. It's totally not problematic in any way, shape, or form! Yay. We interrupt this program to bring you a small sample of things that have lasted longer than the confederacy. Roe v. Wade. The Twilight Zone, Steven Universe, The Wii U, Blockbuster, The DCEU, music videos being played on MTV, The Sailor Moon Manga, Grumpy Cat, Little Bub, The Broadway run of Phantom of the Opera, Stitch's Great Escape in the Magic Kingdom, The Dan and Phil Hiatus, The Average Duration of an American Marriage, Car Phones, Vine, My Emotional Investment in the Halo Franchise. I'm sorry, taking any sort of pride in wanting to enslave people? That's just silly! And as far as additional context, this isn't me excusing anything, this is just context. Because, you know, like, there's plenty of weird ways that the Confederacy will pop up in fiction. And I was actually, like, I, I learned this thanks to, like, trying to go down a rabbit hole as far as, like, when the Confederacy pops up in weird ways in Scooby-Doo. Like how, okay, so like, you know how there's that one episode of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? The one with like the green ghosts that are really iconic looking. The one that was so iconic that Dean and Sam like zapped into that episode specifically for that one Supernatural episode. Super vaguely. So the guy that whose house that they're fucking around in, like there, he has a weird Confederate connection because there's like treasure that the ghosts are looking for and the treasure turns out to be in Confederate dollars. Okay. Implying that this, that guy, I guess, came from a Confederate family. And then also in Scooby-Doo and the Boo Brothers, when Shaggy and Scooby go to the house of Shaggy's recently dead relative, I think he's like an uncle or something, and his ghost starts popping up. His ghost is wearing a Confederate uniform. I didn't realize there was so much Confederate crap in Scooby-Doo. I tried digging around on the internet for any possible explanation for that, and there were two possible explanations. Like, in Scooby-Doo specifically, there's a lot of, like, gothic horror set in the south a lot of classic like there's a lot of classic southern gothic like ghost stories well because you know the, the civil war created a lot of dead people and where there's a lot of dead people there's going to be a lot of ghost stories so that explains for scooby-doo specifically now of course the western genre has always had a problem with not being very historically accurate especially when it comes to the topic of white people doing shitty things but Yay. But, you know, I'm going to try to go in with an open mind, especially since, at least according to Corman, I was always politically liberal, and I, I tried, even on my earliest films, to work in some of my beliefs. Now, something in his book that he cites as an example of that are, like, strong women leads. Quote, I do believe in the feminist movement, unquote. But he claims that he could only take, quote, unquote, partial credit for any feminist themes that popped up in his works. I'm going to assume that that's him implying that it varied depending on, like, what actresses he was working with and what they were bringing into their performances. That makes sense. Because everyone's going to be different. Yeah. And I mean, like, I do already think, you know, like, hopefully Dorothy Malone is going to, if if the movie ends up being bad material, is going to, you know, make the most of it the way she did with Fast and the Furious previously. We're going to find out. And... 
for what it's worth, Roger Corman did end up making a movie with William Shatner in 1962 called The Intruder, which is all about a southern town being shitty and racist. Okay, so, good to know. So it, to try to give, like, it, in case this has been made clear in our previous episodes, this isn't the Roger Corman fellatio hour, nor is it us strapping the old man into the stocks in order to pelt rotten vegetables at him. You know, this is film history, and history of any sort is going to be filled with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so, like, I tried to look up, not excuses for Corman, but context. So at this time, in this period of, like, the late 50s, there was a lot of gearing up and preparation for eventual Civil War centennial events that would happen in different parts of the U.S. in the 1960s. Because keep in mind, you know, Quick recap. So the Civil War, the first battle was in 1861, and the surrender at Appomattox was in 1865. So in order to prepare for centennial events in the 60s, a lot of that prep work and gearing up and momentum building was done in the 50s. So stuff like the National Park Service restoring and landscaping old Civil War battlefields, the U.S. Postal Service making commemorative stamps. This was also when Civil War reenactments became popular was because of this era of like leading up to and during the Civil War centennial period. Really? Yeah. Okay. They so it's like... They didn't invent Civil War reenactments, but this is when they got popular was during this period. So a lot of Civil War on the brain and also keep in mind that because this was during the Cold War, a lot of government entities that were trying to organize all this centennial stuff were trying to do it from the lens of this is supposed to be a unifying event about an American historical thing, you know, like making it less about North versus South and all of the civil rights like related stuff that was too controversial. Hey, this is what I think of the Confederates. <laughs> we can leave that in. <laughs> but like, you know, oh, we gotta provide a united front against those damn commies. We don't want to divide people over like how these historical events tie into current civil rights issues. Oh no. Okay. Rewind. Their bright fucking idea to talk about American unity was to talk about the Civil War. Well, because it's the one war that was Americans versus Americans. How is that about unity? I mean, in terms of, like, everybody coming together to, like, remember it or whatever. But, of course, you know, on a state-by-state -state level, you know, obviously the North took a different approach to it than the South. Like... Oh, fun fact, in the South, it was during this period that, so you know how annoying Confederacy defenders will always pull out this random factoid out of their ass that it's like, oh, it's a, you can't be mad about the, the Confederate flag because it's not even like this was the flag that represented the entire Confederacy. This was only the battle flag of the Army of North Virginia. Huh? That's a thing? My sweet summer child, you don't go on to certain parts of the internet, but that is okay. That's probably better for your mental health that you don't. Yeah, I don't need to be going into screaming matches with these type of folky how. But fun fact, the reason why, like, the Confederate flag that you see on all the belt buckles and t-shirts and, you know, shit today, the reason why it's that specific variation of the North Virginian battle flag is because that was the one that was popular for Southern Civil War centennial events in the 50s and 60s. That's why it's so popular. Yeah. So, oh god damn it. <laughs> 
And there were also some Confederate statues put up, you know, during this period. Not the majority of them, like the whole, you know, groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy and other groups, you know, going around putting up statues of Confederate generals. Like that, we're talking about a span of time from the 1890s to the 1950s. According to the Southern Law, Southern Poverty Law Center, though, the peak was between 1900 and 1920, though. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, like, that's not to say that the 50s invented Confederate dick-sucking and moving. Movies. You know, we had, unfortunately, Birth of a Nation in 1915. You had Gone in the Wind, Gone with the Wind, Gone in the Wind, Gone, gone in the Wind. I, I, I wish that I wish that slaver bitch had gone in the wind. Just fucking, <laughs> just fucking hopped on like a freaking like just hopped on a wind current and just like plopped into the sea. Bye bye. Go away. We don't need your bullshit. Bye. <laughs> And I mean, I, you know, like, I know, I, before you plunk into the comments, I know that the majority of Confederate soldiers did not own slaves. You don't have to remind me of that. But remember, this whole thing was about states' rights to only one particular thing. Sure as fuck wasn't about weed. (laughs) Could you imagine if it was about weed? Oh gosh, like. (laughs) We want to smoke weed, goddammit. General Kush. It's like. General Reginald Cushington. <laughs> yeah! I, I, I do declare this this blunt is thicker than my child's arm. <laughs> that was blown up during the siege. <laughs> but anyway, so like my point- Or we're getting all the Civil War bullshit out of the way oh, now! But like, you know, because I do think there is a way to, you know, to feature Confederate soldiers in, you know, a story that aren't all like cardboard cutout racists without also filleting the Confederacy. Like for all of its flaws, I think that the Django show that was on Netflix recently, like I think it did a lot of shit wrong. Like, you know, that's an entirely separate issue that the writing on that show was very up and down. But one of the high points was showing a character, you know, joining the Confederate army, not for racist reasons, but simply because he needed the money and even having a scene where he's talking to a union soldier and he's like, well, if you needed the money, you could have also joined the union army and him being like, yeah, maybe I should of at this rate like so i don't want anyone to come away from this thinking oh it's autumn you're you're just gonna cancel anybody who makes any kind of movie involving confederate shit it's like no but it's definitely a topic that has been misrepresented often for agenda related reasons yeah and so if you're gonna talk about it you should do your research and not use it as a means of trying to glorify a period of history that was that had a lot of bullshit Historical revisionism is not a favorite thing of ours, that is for sure. You know it is a favorite thing of ours? Posters! Posters! Okay, so- Finally! (laughs) Poster! 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 Okay, so this one is- Relatively simple. I'm is is this the second or third one that's had a lot of yellow in it? It kind of reminds me of the gunfighter. The gunfighter had a lot of yellow in it too. And did Highway Dragnet... I think it had like a splash of yellow. A splash of yellow. And of course, you know, we'll post the picture on the social medias in case you'd like to look as we are discussing it. Kiss for kiss. Bullet for bullet. John Lund. Dorothy Malone. Five Guns West. Or maybe, oh, I, instead of the mid-century voice, maybe I should do a southern voice. It's like, kiss for kiss. Bullet for bullet. What? You sounded like Goofy. <laughs>
I mean, Goofy, I, I didn't realize into this until I was older, but Goofy does kind of sound Southern, so maybe that fits. Kiss for kiss, bullet for bullet, John Lund, Dorothy Malone, Five Guns West, widescreen color, that battle cry girl, and it's Dorothy Malone holding a gun, John Lund also holding a gun. A smaller one, though. She She's packing, she's packing the bigger, bigger firearm. Woo! Yeah! Phallic symbol, phallic symbol, phallic symbol. And there's like some tussling slash fighting going on in the background. Most of it is like kind of hard to tell because it's blending in with the yellow. And it looks like, and I don't know if this is supposed to be a different gal or if this is all supposed to be supposed to be Dorothy Malone. There's like a specifically a, a guy and a gal. Maybe they're fighting. Maybe they're embracing. Maybe a bit of both. Fast and Furious style. Yay. Yay. Oh, God, it's kind of blurry. It's kind of hard to tell. Indeed. But anywho, though, we're going to find out. Let's watch the movie. So uh, we'll be back with our thoughts on Five Guns West. Yeehaw! watched five guns west oh my god how like uh, it's somehow worse <laughs> than fast and the furious because at least frank webster we didn't know if he was racist or not <laughs> i was hoping i was hoping <laughs> <laughs> that th that maybe the closest they'd have to a quote-unquote sympathetic confederate was the guys that were just in it for the money. Well, how did their cow pokes, cow blokes, and cow folks? It's your pal, the interrupting cowgirl, here to talk about something Sabrina and Robin forgot to address. See, those silly surface dwellers only discussed confederate soldiers who volunteered to fight for ideological and or economic reasons. And although it's true that the majority of the confederate army was a military fighting force, According to the National Park Service, 10% of them so-called rebel soldiers were actually drafted. And I can't think of any type of confederate more worthy of sympathy in a potential narrative than the kind that didn't even want to be there. But I suppose I may be a bit biased on account of my great-great-great-grandpappy having been conscripted by the confederates. But great-great-grandpappy was none to be told what to do, especially by people who claimed that their whole reason for seceding was because they didn't want the government telling them what to do. So after he and his drinking buddies burned down the local conscription bureau office, he went on the run. In fact, he was in the middle of fleeing the authorities when the ground split open and he fell down into these here catacombs, which even back then were teeming with all shapes and sizes of cave cattle. I get a little misty-eyed just imagining it. But to make a long story short, great-great-great-grandpap put down roots and we've been catacomb farmers ever since. Now that there's the heritage that I'm proud of. Welp, it's been a fun history lesson, but I gotta get back to attending to my herd. They've been mighty well behaved, so I think I'll lead them up to the surface and let them use the nearest confederate monument as a cow lick. And in the meantime, maybe Sabrina and Robin will post some links in the description to videos that also talk about media portrayals of the confederate. But until next time, y'all have yourselves a good one, you hear? 
Right! But no, of course there's one who they basically imply is good because, you know, he's got a set of, he's got, he's got an honor code. Cause he's, Wait, we're getting too ahead yeah. of ourselves. Okay. We gotta start from the beginning. Yeah, basically, we first get the titular five guns. It's five different guys that are convicts for various moida-related crimes. First one is William Billy Candy, basically accused of robbing and murder. And then his brother, John Morgan Candy, murdered two lawmen in an attempt to break out his bro. And also, so Billy Candy is Jonathan Hayes, and John Candy is actually played by the screenwriter, Robert Wright Campbell, although he was credited for the acting bit as Bob Campbell. Really? Yeah. Oh, Kind of cute. Um... <laughs> but that's but that's unrelated. Then there's J.C. Haggard, codenamed Santa. He's got a nice scruffy beard. I mean, like it's a lot of white people in this movie. I needed to figure out how to like differentiate them, especially because they're most of them are wearing very similar, like you know, Wild West outfits, very monochromatic. Oh my god, I had the heart. We had to rewatch the beginning, the roll call, like three times for me to get it straight in my head who was who. In fairness, you didn't necessarily have to write down their middle names, but I applaud your dedication. <laughs> I tried. But yeah, J.C. Haggard, his whole thing was that he was like herding some cattle down towards New Orleans. The Confederates stopped him because I guess like he was taking a route he wasn't supposed to. Or later they implied that it might have been because he was trying to sell the cattle that he was moving along to Union forces. But either way, he's like, the Confederates have no right to stop me. There's an altercation. Two Confederate soldiers and five of his own guys get killed. And so then he gets charged for being responsible for all seven deaths. And then after that is Hale Clinton killed an unarmed man over a card game. I call him Eyebrows McFuckboy in my notes. Because <laughs> he's literally doing like a meaner version of the DreamWorks eyebrow thing in like the first shot of him. And then last is Govern Sturges, a professional highwayman and, you know, all these guys were supposed to be hung by the neck until they died. But the Confederates, there's like a title, there's some text at the beginning that explains it's the latter days of the Civil War. The Confederates are desperate for extra, you know, manpower. So they're pardoning criminals in order to get them to do dangerous jobs. So in this case, all five of these guys are getting pardoned. Oh my god. It's is Confederate this... Suicide Squad. It's Confederate Suicide Squad! <laughs> Complete with a certain detail that is a spoiler, we'll get to it. But um, but they're basically supposed to, there's a guy by the name of Stephen Jethro, which actually, um, when I ended up looking at the cast list, he's actually played by Jack Ingram, the cowboy actor that founded that one little, that built that one little western town on the ranch. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That's cute. But yeah, but his character in this movie, he's a turncoat. Apparently he like was involved in like the Confederate spy ring, but decided to take the gold that was supposed to be used to help fund the spy efforts and run off with it to the Union side and basically spill like the names of a bunch of Confederate spies in order to get amnesty. So there's a stagecoach that they know is carrying him and presumably the gold, about $30,000 worth. And that's $30,000 in 1800s money. So that's God knows how much. We can edit in the calculation later. Hello, it's Future Robin wanting to let you guys know that $30,000 in 1865 would be worth today $582,869.45. Holy shit. <laughs> 
later. And so they're trying to intercept him so that way he doesn't spill the Confederate secrets. And also with the implication that in addition to getting pardoned, the convicts can also keep the gold, potentially. Or at the very least, that? Or at the very least, they get to keep their freedom because I think they said that they, that the Confederates wanted that gold. The Confederates to, wanted to that gold. But fund I think, the war effort. But didn't they also imply that the, even the Confederates are aware that part of the reason they're motivated to is to do this mission is because of the money. Because two of the Confederate guys are talking to each other and one of them is like, they have 30,000 reasons to care. Okay. So, I mean, I don't think it was, like, officially and they can keep the gold, but I'm imagining it was a case of, well, we'd rather them keep the gold as long as we can get the guy back and keep the secrets hidden. I'm sure they'd prefer to have the gold back, especially because Hale even makes a comment of, oh, is that $30,000 in Confederate script or in real money? Ooh. So, they all get started, they all get on their horses, and basically, Govern Sturges turns into the leader of the group. And, which... Hale is not necessarily fond of, you know, it's like, oh, why are you the one that gets to call the shots? Like, he's the one he, that keeps trying to stir shit, especially with the Candy Brothers, who, as the movie went on, I realized they were kind of giving me the vibes of the brothers from, from Dust Till Dawn. Like, there's the one that's mostly stable, and then there's the one that's knocking futs and violent at, like, the drop of a hat. Did yeah. I, did I show you from Dust Till Dawn? I haven't seen that. I, I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it. When it's, he was on TV, but I've never seen the whole thing start to finish. But you know how George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino, like, they play brothers, and George Clooney's the stable one, and Quentin Tarantino plays the crazy one? Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. Well, the, the point Spoilers. is- Spoilers. Spoilers for a movie that you've seen piecemeal, apparently. <laughs> That's not even the biggest spoiler in relation to that movie. I know what the famous spoiler is, which I walked vampire into- Vampire hookers or something? Yeah, like vampire strippers. Vampire strippers. Which Some I, sort of- Which I walked into Sexy vampire. Yeah, which I walked into completely buying. That was one of those movies that I just caught on cable. No cultural context. Ooh. Which, but tangent, but anyway. But Billy is the unstable one, and John is the one that kind of, like, tries to keep him in line. But Hale, he sees Billy get agitated, and he's like, ooh, I want to keep agitating you. Like, because he, he keeps, like, calling him shorty, and he's like, don't call me shorty. Like, And JC's just sort of... He's just along for the ride. It's like... Yeah, and basically they agreed to take a route where it's shorter, but it risks interactions with the Indians. With the Native... Yeah, it's Native American territory. And so... So they hoof it along enough, apparently, to set up camp for the first time. And that's when Hale calls Billy Shorty again. Wait, no, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Well, first, he has this moment where he's, like, literally staring into the flames. And he's like, "Mm, like that color. Like that one girl's red hair. Now it's turning a different kind of red. Red like blood. There was blood in her hair. And like, and John is, his brother John is literally like, you can think it, but don't say it. And Hale's like, oh, you're short and crazy. And Billy throws a knife. And at first Hale takes that as like, oh, you want to fucking fight with me? You want to fucking fight with me? But no, it turns out it's because Billy fucking ninja star threw that knife at a snake that was sneaking up on Hale. So like already there's tension. And Hale like approaches JC at one point. To be like, hey, you want to team up with me and we can fuck the rest of these guys over and run off with the gold? And JC's like, hey, man, I'm just... I'm just vibing. I'm, I'm, I'm just here along for the ride. I It's like, I don't want to get involved in any, like, rivalries or coup d'etats or whatever. It's like, oh, so I know what your initial stand for. Just cautious. 
And JC explains a little bit that his kid died from plague. And, and his wife his... died from a Native American attack. But anyway, it's like, because the majority of the Native Americans are just stock footage. But there is one who I'm sure was played by a white guy, especially judging from what I know about some of Roger's later Westerns, who ambushes one of them. Because at one point they kind of are spreading out to kind of scope out the area. And Billy's by himself. And a Native American literally jumps on him from a high rock, but he's able to kill him. And then he goes into video game mode because as soon as he kills him, he's just like going through his clothes. It's like, knife's tucking in my boot. Like just grabbing all the weapons that he can. But the reason why an Indian attacks him in the first place is because Billy shoots a bird just because... Just cause. Yeah, like, he's he's very, like, they don't obviously, you know, like, give him specific. He's just, in general, like, somewhere on the spectrum of, like, mental illness slash neurodivergence. Like, very antsy, very gets bored easily. And so, yeah, he shoots the bird out of the sky, and Govern is like, you fucking idiot, now any natives in the area are gonna know where we are. And so they get into a tussle, he takes... Billy's gun, but then Billy threatens to shank him, and he's like, go ahead, cut my hair. And Billy kind of backs off, because he's like, oh, you didn't care whether I was going to stab you or not. Respect. (laughs) Yay! Crazy people, mutual respect! Woohoo! Like, that's the only, that one Native American is the only one that they tussle with, because then they're like, okay, maybe we need to, like, go more into this wooded area, at least until the natives, like, move on elsewhere. And when they go into this wooded area, they find a ghost town, and in that ghost town is Dorothy Malone's character, Shally, or Shaylee, was it Shally or Shaylee? Shaylee didn't know what the fuck name that was at first. Okay. We had to look it up where it is a real name. Because there's like a gal that's in Women's NBA that has that name from Kansas, actually. So like, but it, yeah, it's spelled weird. It's S-H-A-L-E-E. But that's Dorothy Malone and she lives alone in the town with her Uncle Mike, who basically all he does is drink. So she's the real one running things. We end up finding out that the reason why they're the only ones in that town was because it used to be a mining town, but the mine dried up. So everybody else left, but they will, they stayed because they service the coaches that pass through. So Shaylee sees the group coming and she's like, oh my God, these guys are probably horse thieves. So she gets her uncle to post with a gun and then she breaks a window just to take a better shot at Govern. She's really close to her feet and she's like, fuck off, get the hell out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. That exchange kind of goes on for a couple more bullets before... Because basically the rest of the group kind of like flanks around the building. Hale is able to surprise the uncle. Because surprise, surprise, the drunk doesn't have great reflexes. So Hale takes his gun. And then like that distracts Dorothy long enough that... Govern is able to... Like poke his head in. Like poke his front end in Winnie the Pooh style. Into the partially open... A partially open window with his handgun. And is like, okay, drop that shotgun. So Shaylee and her uncle's weapons get confiscated. And they're like, hey, we just want some water. Can you tell us where the water is? And she's like, yeah, there's a well outside. And you guys can stay outside. You know, fuck off. And Govern's like, well, you stay inside. And Hale is already trying to get flirty. With Shaylee, do you have any other hospitality to offer? Ooh. We've been on the road a long while. It's like, I what? haven't seen a woman in forever. And, and she's like, yeah, that's why I don't trust you. Valid. She's feeling seen, very. She, she, she's been being horny on Maine and she's like, no. 
And eventually, though, she has to fetch water from the well as well. Hale's all like, oh, hey, how about we have a dance? And, like, JC just, like, whips out a harmonica and starts going at it. And so then, like, she kind of has to dance with Hale. But then, like, she kind of gets into it. And at first you're thinking, oh, maybe this is going to be a cute little interaction. Maybe it's not going to be awkward. Because then her uncle even, like, busts a guitar and comes out. And him and JC are jamming. But then it gets to the point where John basically, like, comes up from behind. Like, he's, he's basically doing the whole, it's like, mom said it's my turn with the Xbox. But it's like, it's my turn to dance with the only girl oh god it was like there was so much tension with all these criminal dumbasses around a pretty girl it's like oh god are they gonna do is something bad gonna happen to her the entire fucking time apparently everyone gets a turn to dance with her except i think except for govern and the guy who was john i think no it's billy john was the one that was like hey i want to dance with her too and then jc danced with her and then we didn't see billy it's like and they didn't make that clear if that's because john was like nope like no billy was off oh look out yes because like basically they periodically swap out the guys to like go to a particular lookout point on like a hill or a tall rock and so billy's out on the lookout and so like jc gets a turn to dance hale does and john does but govern doesn't want to and hale's all like oh you think you're better than us just because you know you're being all gentlemanly and whatever he then walks her to the house and is like oh god what did he say he basically low-key victim blames her because he's like oh why didn't you just have your uncle go out to get the water it's like bitch have you seen this guy all he does is sits around and drinks are you seriously gonna victim blame her how dare you exist in around all of our presences you damn woman you but then the next day like because they basically do the whole swapping out the lookouts through the night and the day so then come the next morning john is supposed to swap out on the lookout spot for billy and meanwhile govern takes jc and hale and is like hey let's circle around this town and basically get a good idea for like what are the entry points what are the exit points because we want to try to funnel the stagecoach through the area that we came through so it's easier to ambush it So there's that brief window where none of the guys are there, but their bags are still there. So Shaylee takes the opportunity to try to go through their shit, trying to figure out what the fuck they're doing there. But Billy shows up and is like, hey girl, what, you trying to rummage through our stuff? Uh Uh-oh, I'm just looking for some tobacco. You want to steal some tobacco? No, I was just going to borrow it. But he sort of lets loose that they're after a stagecoach. Yeah, because she basically is like trying to sweet talk him just enough to get him to keep talking but like hopefully still get out of the situation as quick as possible because it's like oh i really would appreciate that tobacco it's like you know not much else to do around here what are you guys waiting for it's like oh a stagecoach oh yeah really it's like yeah it's like a union stagecoach we're looking for a guy who turned coat on the federates it's like you guys don't look like confederates you aren't wearing uniforms it's like well yeah because they wouldn't stop by here if they saw confederates you know skulking around or whatever and she's like hey cool i got all the information i needed bye don't you want that tobacco yeah for sure because that's my cover story i want to kiss for it uh... god damn and it. she tries to like 
you know, weasel out of it, understandably so, and he grabs her and is, like, grappling with her, and, like, she's trying to get the fuck away, trying to turn her head away, and she's like, well, let me think about it, let me think about it. It's like, I'm not asking anymore. And then, thankfully, John shows up and, like, bonks him over the fucking head and knocks him out, and congratulations, at least for once, the forcible kissing was framed as a bad thing. And then that's when Govern and the rest of their group comes back, and... And and Govern walks her back to the house, and... I wrote this down because it's like, again, this is so frustrating. He fucking victim blames her again because he's like, oh, you insist on parading like a pony at the auction and stirring the boys up. Fuck you. How dare she exist in this place where she's resided most of her life? Oh my god. Uh, Horny men are the worst. But... Or just men who can't control their fucking urges. Holy fucking shit. It's called your hand. It's good old slappy. Luckily, though, because of, you know, the information she was able to extract from Billy before things escalated, she's like, okay, they're Confederates. Like, there's a union coach coming. Uncle Mike, I'm going to try to sneak out in the middle of the night with one of our horses, and I'm going to try to go out and see if I can find that union coach and warn them. And he's all like, that's going to be too dangerous. And she's like, what the fuck else are we supposed to do? Let me do it. No, I have better chance than you, Uncle Mike. Oh, fun fact. He was aware of the Billy attack happening. And did Jack, Jack and Death. Di- and then he fucking has a little sob moment where he's all like, I thought the drink would give me my nerve back, but it just took it away. And then he like breaks the bottle and it's like, Jackass, you could have fucking broken the bottle earlier and tried to shank the motherfucker attempting to assault your niece, but no. You useless lump. What the fuck were you doing, dude? Come on. It's like... Oh my god. So she goes to the barn, she gets a horse, and then she tries to make it out of there, but, but then that's when she gets stopped by Govern. And he's all like, oh, you know, like, John's stationed on the lookout point. He would have spotted you and put a bullet in between your shoulder blades. It's like, yeah, well, you guys are gonna kill me anyway, so, like, I'd rather die trying to, you know, save myself than just wait for you guys to kill me. You know, he's, like, trying to, like, I'm not gonna say really sweet talk, but he's trying to do the whole thing of, like, just because I'm gruff doesn't mean I'm bad. And she's like, oh, you're just like all the other men. It's like, I know that you've got like, ill intentions for me, and he's all like, just because a guy has thoughts doesn't mean his actions have to reflect that. It's like, I've got reasons for not acting the way I think. It's like, oh, I'm sure your reasons are very happy together. And he's like, not very. And then he fucking, keep in mind, he's got, he's holding both of her wrists, and he fucking forces a kiss, but this time, it's romantic. God because she does that, like, fucking 1950s woman thing of, like, initially her, like, hands are clenched, but then she, like, loosens them. Because, oh, now she's into it, and I want to fucking vomit. Same. It was like, I feel so bad for Dorothy Malone. She's, she's only been in two fucking Corman films so far, and each time she gets forcibly kissed, in this case, twice! It's like, yeah, she's been a strong female character in the sense of like, she try well, she tries to be, but then the plot's like, no, 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 you must submit to a manly man. Both of these movies, both The Fast and the Furious and this, kind of, and I don't think this was intentional, like, this was just, you know, like, unfortunately absorbing bullshit from the culture, and I mean, we are talking about the 1950s, but like, this is how incels think it works. They think that, oh, the fucking, the quote-unquote nice guys, when they're creepy, women are turned off by that, but if a manly Chad fucking puts her in her place, that fucking makes her all quivery and wet. Oh, God. Uh, just talking about it makes me want to vomit. Uh... 
And so he makes her go back to the house. And, but it turns out that Hale was watching the whole thing and he's all like, oh, you know, you like her too. <laughs> and he's like, hey, tell you what, let's kill the other three. You get the girl and I get the gold. And Govern's like, it's not about the money for me. Like, we're doing this job right. And Hale's like, oh, are you sure? Because I mean, if you bullets hit the gold, that's not gonna hurt. But, you know, she could get hurt. Basically, the only thing that makes him better than them is that he doesn't objectify her and, like, treat her like an object as much. He still does, but not as much. So that's what makes him the default good guy. And a secret other thing that we will later reveal. But so the next morning, the union coach does show up and they successfully ambush it. Also, one of the union guys, bless his heart, like he shouts ambush. And when he gets shot, he like falls over and does this like the derpiest like little death sequence. It was bad. It was hilariously bad. Because it's like, because <laughs> it's like he's like doubling over, but then he like kind of is like, I don't know if it was that he was like maybe I can get off a shot no slumps over like his death and Dorothy A. Malone were the best parts <laughs> also is it me or like I don't know if it's just because his jacket his union jacket was extra patty he looked so top heavy and that's what added to the comedy of him like kind of half falling over half not falling over so after the ambush they kill all the union soldiers and they get their guide Stephen Jethro and that's when we find out the gold is not with the guy. Jethro doesn't have the gold that they're looking for. Like he already routed it forward on a different coach to California. It's somewhere in Cali. I can't, I didn't really He's, remember. He said that like he had, he sent it off like on a different coach and had it deposited at Wells Fargo. Yes, Wells, Far Wells Fargo is actually that old. Jesus Christ. <laughs> actually, I think their little logo is a stagecoach. Really? Yeah. I have no clue what their logo was. Or at least like sometimes there'll be a stagecoach and so there adds like a little stylized stagecoach but he does have on him the list of the 200 confederate spies that he was gonna rat out to the union and that's what governs more concerned with because he's like this could hang 200 men and in my head i'm like 200 confederates though so no loss and this is where hale starts to accuse govern of being a confederate officer right because basically hale and the others are like well if we let this guy live instead of giving him over to the confederates to be tried and probably executed he can take us to california and he can give us the gold but governs like no we gotta take him so he can stand trial for his crimes against the confederacy and hale's like you're being too straight laced right now you're a narc you're a plant you weren't a highwayman. You weren't a convict. You're a Confederate officer that was basically sent along to supervise us. Very much like the military guy from the Suicide Squad movie. What was his name? Rick Colonel Flagg? F Colonel Flagg or yeah. something like that? Yeah, Colonel Flagg. He's the Colonel Flagg of this Confederate Suicide Squad. Except what if Colonel Flagg was disguising himself as a supervillain? So at that point, Govern takes Jethro and backs into the house. Well, because basically Hale's like, hey, if you get Give us Jethro. I'll let the girl live. You and the girl can run off together. Just give us Jethro. Otherwise, we're just gonna kill all of you and take Jethro anyway. And basically, like, Govern and the others on the inside are like, he's probably gonna kill us even if we do, like, agree to his proposal. Because he's shady and doesn't have any principles, unlike our good confederate man. Right. I, like, I hate uh... that that's, 
like the way they used to and basically the reason why govern is good is because oh well he's a principled man he's a good soldier or whatever yeah a good confederate soldier he's not even one of those confederates that was just in it for the money he's actively wanting to uphold the institution of slavery or at best he's like okay because it's like in my mind and you know like there's three major subtypes of like confederates there's the ones that were only in it for the money the ones that weren't necessarily racist but something something this is my land this is my home and i'm gonna defend it from the northern invaders never mind the fact that it's these rich bitches up in richland or wherever big southern cities that are forcing us into this situation and if anything we should be overthrowing them but no that sounds too progressive instead i'm just gonna fight the northern invaders to defend my land and then you've got the racist motherfuckers who either own slaves and wanted to keep owning slaves or the ones that even if they couldn't afford to own slaves, they would rather that black people remained enslaved than be free men and women that would be competition in the job market. He's he's definitely not in it for the money, so that means he's one of the other two subtypes, neither of which are very great in my opinion. Agreed. It's like, why is he the quote hero of this film? film. I don't care at this point. And granted, it's been a while since I've played D&D, so I may be stomping over nuances of the different, like, morality alignments, but it's like, they're basically implying that it's like, oh, well, at least he's, like, lawful evil or lawful neutral, as opposed to the other convicts who are chaotic evil. Except for JC. JC's just kind of there. JC's just kind of there, because yeah, like... He wants the gold, too, but it's like... We'll get to what JC does. Right. Governor like let's wait him out Billy's unstable they might turn on each other if we wait him out and then they're kind of like well we're gonna wait him out too because we got eyes on the house we can make sure that they don't leave the house Exactly. And then eventually Billy does basically go ADHD and is like, I'm tired of waiting. And so he like runs out and tries to shoot his gun, predictably gets shot by Govern. It's like, what were you expecting to happen? Right? Like, Billy, come on. I guess were they thinking that having him and Hale get into another fight, get into another tiff was going to be too predictable? I I guess. but But then John comes out and he like visibly takes his gun belt off because he initially makes it seem like he's only going to retrieve his brother's body. And Govern's like, oh, well, I'm not going to shoot an unarmed man. Oh, so you'll force a kiss on a woman, but you won't shoot an unarmed man. You're so fucking honorable. Boo! Lame-ass bitch excuse! Boo! Also, um, we do get, we do get a consensual kiss while they're, like, waiting on the inside because she's basically all like, oh, you know, I used to think I had no future because I'm just stuck here in this ghost town with my alcoholic dad, but- Not dad, uncle. The alcoholic dad, uncle, shithead father figure of some sort, shithead older man who does nothing but get drunk and, and mope and expect, you know, the women in his life to comfort him but (laughs) but now i think i might actually have a future with you and so they have a consensual kiss it's for stupid reasons so fucking stupid it's like honey you can do better than that. Dorothy Malone, like both, this is t- twice now, where she's played a character who could deserve better than the guy that the screenwriter has fucking forced her to be with. In this case, this is all Roger Corman's doing because he was well, the executive Wayne producer yeah, it, well, and it's Cam- the, the director and producer. And it's so- Cam- Campbell has fault too because he's the one who wrote the screenplay. Right. And again, like, I don't, I don't think Roger was intending, like, 
Because, again, allegedly, you know, I'm very liberal. Bah, bah, bah. I mean, he did end up making a movie that was like, hey, racism's bad. I don't know if it was just this clueless white guy thing of, I want to play around with these historical events. No, I don't need to think about the context for, like, how they relate to current bullshit that's happening right now. Oh, God. <laughs> but, I mean, there was a lot of, especially at this time, this notion of, oh, well, you know, the Northerners and the Southerners may have had disagreements, but there were good people on both sides you know that kind of like lame ass bullshit. bullshit but so john looks like he's only going to retrieve billy's body but then instead he takes the gun off of billy's body gets a couple shots in and basically ducks around fast enough to get into the crawl space like under the porch and under the house because he tries to shoot at them through the floor right and it's like governs like hey don't move because he's gonna track you with your steps and at one point, uh, Jethro tries to run away, but he stopped when a bullet almost shoots him through the dick. <laughs> Which, ow, that would have hurt like a son of a bitch. <laughs> like even even with the bullet not hitting, just that like that force of that air passing. Airbender. No, I was thinking Ball punch. <laughs> I was thinking more like mantis crab logic of just like mantis crab. There's there's like a mantis crab that it can see weird colors, but another thing that it can do is that it can basically like compress air pressure into a little ball and shoot it at fish to kill them. That is so badass. What is it called? A mantis shrimp? Yeah, like you're gonna have to show me. A video the physics of this aren't later. exactly the same, but I'm just saying that like I can imagine that the air like of even if the bullet didn't hit your skin, the ricochet air movement happening. Do you think that would that the ball sack would appreciate that, or do you think or the ball sack would be like nar? I I wouldn't use the word ricochet, but like okay. the f the wind around the bullet, the force around the bullet, right? Oh, his balls definitely felt a tingle. <laughs> <laughs> but then all the while. JC and Hale are kind of having a back and forth because Hale's like, hey, you know, like John was able to fucking get onto the porch. Let's see if we can get into the, get towards the building and try something. And JC's all like, you know, at this point, I don't even care about the money. I just want to live. So I'm going to point my gun at you long enough for you to put your gun down. I'm going to hop on this horse and I'm going to ride my way out of this fucking movie. <laughs> Goodbye. Because <laughs> he does. Because Hale was like, hey, I want you to run out through the front and I'll go through the back. And it's like, JC's like, I'm not dying for you. Why? Dying for your shithead plans? So yeah, he just moseys his own his ass out of this fucking film and good on JC. JC is the only one out of this bunch who wasn't fuck okay, yeah, he did want to get a turn with dancing with fucking with Shally, but at but, least he Okay, did, he I'll didn't take force that. A kiss. He didn't force a kiss. He's not trying to uphold slavery. Possibly he may have been aiding and abetting the union if the whole bit about like, oh, were you gonna sell those cattle to the union was correct. And now he's like, okay. Like, I'm sick of this shit. I'm just riding out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go live my own life. Bye-bye. He, sa he sashays away. Uh, Sashay away! <laughs> but after that, Hale... Oh, shit. What does Hale do? Um, he then, like, because basically, freaking Govern goes under the crawl space to get at John. And there's a conveniently placed crawl space rock that... <laughs> The Govern hides behind as, like, cover to shoot at John, and then he does end up killing him. But while that's happening down below, Hale, like, has everyone at gunpoint, you know. The front porch. And apparently, Govern is able to fedangle his way out of the crawl space on the other side to get to the backside of Hale. And he's like, 
drop the gun, and Hale's like, fuck off. If you try to kill me, then my the dead weight of my finger is going to kill the lady. And apparently he does, Govern does drop the gun, but only just so he can tackle Hale, and they have a little tussle on the ground where he's got a hand on his gun hand, and then he's got another hand on his knife hand, and they're wrestling until Govern is able to get Hale's knife to stab himself, and yeah. And so now Hale's dead, the candy boys are dead, JC is off living his life, good for him. Good for JC. And so they bury the Union soldiers, oh, and there's some lip service to, oh, you know, these men came a long way, you know, to, you know, for their cause, it's like they were good soldiers, yep. I definitely respect them. Now, black people, on the other hand. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, ah, he didn't say that last bit. The politics of this is just like a nightmare. Because yeah, it's like, he didn't say that last bit, but that was the vibe. Because I'm just like, it's like, yes. That's kind of like the unspoken truth of the situation where him being a confederate officer he's and, actively helping this army and the fact that him being a confe- a good like disciplined confederate officer is the reason is framed as the reason why he's better than the rest of these like low down convicts and it's like he's res- he, he's uh, a bad person but he's a respectable bad person he's not a murderer like the rest of them he <laughs> it's like oh or it's my like, god or it's like he only he only murders people on the battlefield like you know to fight for the rights of slavers to keep owning slaves so what? basically after that it's like they load up his saddlebags with food and ammunition so he's about to take off and it's like well like he's gonna take Jethro back to the south to get you know presumably tried and hung as a turncoat and then he's like well and after that it'll be a long trip home home back to you woman I barely know and who I forced a kiss on but let's get one more consensual kiss in so we've had two forced kisses one by Billy one by Govern and then two consensual kisses with Govern. So this movie has a 50% consent rate. Stellar. (laughs) Man, that's a really bad grade. Only 50%? Come on. So let's get to the trash rating. Now remember, trash is not a binary, it's a spectrum. So if it's so bad that it's bad, it's bad trash. If it's so bad that it's good, then it's good trash. If it's so good that it's just like fine, then it's non-trash. But then if it's so good that it's great, it turns into a dumpster diamond. Anti-trash supreme. But it, it is nowhere near that. Oh, no. no we this we is have bad trash. Bad trash. Bad trash all the way. It was like... There's not enough goofy moments to be worth the Confederate bullshit. It's like, I really like the conflict of this band of rogues trying to work together, but also like... Ooh, there's these like mini alliances. Like, ooh, maybe we can help kill the other. Like, the candies talk to Hale. Oh, hey, let's kill the other three. And then Hale talks to JC. Oh, hey, let's kill the other three. And then Hale comes to Govern and is like, oh, hey, let's team up. That was good. I like that. Mm-hmm. That them all having to force themselves to work together in spite of how much they don't trust each other. I like that. But the whole, oh, I'm in love with Govern because he's not like the rest of these 
murderers. It's like... Uh... He only forcibly kissed me in a studly way. He didn't do it in a cringe incel way like Billy did. Like, really, what was the difference between him forcing a kiss on Dorothy Malone versus Billy forcing a kiss uh, on her? One, he's taller than her, so he's a chap. <laughs> You hear that, boys? Force women to like you if you're tall enough. Well, that and also, I think the, the logic is... those short motherfuckers. The, too fucking bad, the, bitches. And I think also the logic is that, well, he respected her up until that point. So, oh, he, like, fulfilled the Southern gentleman respectable quota enough to do what he wanted. In, like, a moment of heightened emotion and passion. You can't see this, but I'm rolling my eyes so hard that they're basically going into the back of my head. <laughs> I will say that uh, Jonathan Hayes did a good job because like I didn't know much about his like range going in I've seen the original Little Shop of Horrors so I know that he can do being like you know an adorable little like you know he's just a little guy like he's just a little guy but, like, he did a pretty good job as being, like, the resident psycho. Agreed. With John having to keep a short leash on him and whatnot, and him getting all antsy with all the waiting around. Yeah, he was a good resident asshole. Mm-hmm. And Just, like, the whole crux of this, honestly, I think I would have preferred Govern if he wasn't a fucking... If he wasn't a con- if he wasn't a soldier ma- masquerading as a convict. If he was just another convict, but was at least like, hey, I don't want collateral damage. I respect women. Okay, cool. But- Maybe he just wants to go back. He, he wants to go on the straight and narrow. He wants to do this mission and be done with it so he can have a clean slate and go about his life that way. Or, you know, like, hey, you scoundrels can get the gold. Hey, Jethro, I'm gonna tell them that you're dead. Scurry off, run away. <laughs> no one has to know. Like, but no, we can't have something cool like that. The Confederates, I guess, deserved one more win before the end of the war. And what's weird is that, like I said, Campbell wrote the screenplay and Campbell played John and Campbell also wrote the screenplay for Mask of the Red Death, which I like. And one of the like multiple reasons that I like it is because it takes the very, you know, like reasonable stance of, hey, oppression is bad. It's fun to watch bad things happen to bad people. Right! And I'm not saying that everything has to, like, follow that kind of fairy tale logic, but I don't think it's too much of an ask to be like, Hi, can we not romanticize the Confederacy? Quitty, please? This doesn't go as hard as, like, stuff like Gone with the Wind, but that's probably only because of the budgetary restrictions. And, like, and again, I don't think that Corman was necessarily trying to be all, like, the South will rise again. Again, him and Campbell feel like they are just, they think they're just playing with little, like, G.I. Joes. They're, they're playing Old-timey with- G.I. Joes. <laughs> but it was like, yeah, no, bad trash, bad, 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 bad trash. Yeah, because, like, even at that point, it was less than a hundred years ago, and, you know, like, people, especially people of color, were still feeling the ripple effects. And it was and like... And they still are to this day. Like... Yeah. Please tell me that the next film is gonna be better. <laughs> well, okay, I had two options, because we're getting to the point where, you know, like, Corman's output is really ramping up, which means that, like, any given year, he's got multiple balls up in the air at once, you know, multiple things in production. So I had two options. Either we could go with his next Western, which is called Apache Woman. I am not. (laughs) I do not have good vibes. I really hope that it's not gonna be racist, but 1950s 
Not being racist. I think that's too much of a fucking ask. We can't even get a romance that isn't... Oh my god. I feel so bad for dogging on the love story from Monster from the Ocean Floor. That is the only consensual love story. That, okay, that and the gunfighter. And Highway Dragnet was at least no forced kisses. At least at no le- forced at least, kisses. At least no romanticized assault. It's, right! I was going to say, if, like so far ranking the romances, gunfighter at the top. I guess, does that kind of count? Like, well, we, we didn't see their romance. Like, we didn't see like the beginning of the romance, but we saw that like they still clearly had feelings for each other and still loved each other. I'm to count it yeah it's like put that at the top monster on the ocean floor second place highway dragon at third and then fast of the furious and five guns west are like neck and neck for last place i swap monster from the ocean floor that is the best romance of the films that we've seen so far then the gunfighter then highway dragnet then um yeah definitely five guns west on the bottom for fuckity fucking sake. Are you just putting Monster on the Ocean Floor above Gunfighter because the guy had a nice singing voice? Like, we actually see the romance a little bit? It's not much, but I'll fucking take it at this. Compared to fucking Fast and the Furious and Five Guns West, oh my, oh my god, god, it's like Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Now, our second option. So, like I said, we could do Apache Woman next, or we could do The Beast with a Million Eyes. Oh, Monster Movie! Okay, I want to say, let's go in chronological order. Let's just get... Wait, we don't know what we're going to... You, the audience, don't know what we're going to do next. So you're going to have to come back and find out. Okay, spoilers. I am spacing out the Westerns. Okay. I mean, like, I'm not just doing it just because, oh, we had a bad time with Five Guns West. It's just because, like, in general, you know, it's like, we need some spoopy. Need some spoopy. We need some spoopy. They both came out the same year. So, and, like, especially since with some of these movies, especially the older ones, some of them specify what month that they came out on, like, Wikipedia or IMDb, and some of them don't. So, there's gonna be a little bit of winging required. It's mo- it's still gonna be mostly chronological order, but yeah, it's like, so tune in next time when we cover the beast with- Oh, wait, did I say a thousand eyes or a million eyes? Million eyes, I think. I can't remember Blarg. Let's just go with a million eyes. It, it is a million eyes. I'm scared that I said a thousand eyes, but hey, good news for you, listener. Even more eyes. <laughs> All of the eyeballs. So yeah, be sure to tune in your earballs for the next episode when we cover the beast with a million eyes. Bye. Bye. Ambush. Get that stage out of here. The Corman Catacombs is a production by Sabrina Stan and Robin Troy. Our podcast art and spooky tunes are by our good friend Elias. You can check out his artwork on Instagram at Don't Mind If I Doodle and Twitter at Don't Mind If I Do Too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Corman Catacombs. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned as we journey further into the depths. Be sure to rate and review us. If you give us a five-star review, we may even read it 
on a future episode of the podcast. And be sure to follow our social medias. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram at Corman Catacombs. If you would like to support us, you can make a one-time donation on our Ko-fi, or you can share this podcast with a friend. And just be sure not to stray too far, or you'll be lost in the catacombs forever. Oh.